www.wjffradio.com. And from listener donations at wjffradio.org. Welcome to the local edition news and information to keep you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dolp, and it's Wednesday here. And what we do on Wednesdays is we find out the latest on jobs and the economy around our listening area around the world. For that, we turn to James B. Huntington for WorkShift Live. We'll be doing that in the second half of the program. But first, we kick off our Wednesdays by finding out the latest news that's happening in our listening area from the River Reporter. It's our weekly news roundup with Liam Mayo. Hello, Liam. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me back. No problem. Did you uh, did you do all right in the wind today? It was a very windy day. Yeah, I, I got to stay inside for most of it, okay. thankfully. I hope well, you did all right as well. Yeah, well, we let people know there's a wind advisory in effect uh, for, you, you know, uh, central New York and parts of northeast Pennsylvania until 9 o'clock tonight. But it does seem that along with the rain tapering off, a lot of that wind has uh, tapered off, too. Again, it might might be more gusty near higher elevations. But giving people that little weather update, now we can get to the real news. Let's start with Pike County. Liam, uh Pike County commissioners announcing Northwell Health has made a verbal commitment to open up urgent care facilities in Pike County. Uh, what what does this mean? Um, well, what it means is, in theory, there will be an urgent care facility in Pike County. And you'd think that would sort of be obvious that a county would have an urgent care facility. But according to this announcement, out of the 67 counties in Pennsylvania, Pike is the only one that does not have a hospital or an urgent care facility located within its boundaries. Wow. So this uh, Northwell Health coming in, Northwell Health being a New York State-based um, uh, company that has 21 hospitals covering a service area of 12 million individuals, this company coming in will potentially fill a massive need that has not yet been met. Um, the announcement funnily enough, says that an executive at the company was vacationing in Pike County, experienced a medical emergency, and sort of experienced firsthand the struggle that Pike residents face because they don't have an urgent care facility in the county, and then approached the commissioners to try and resolve that. So, Wow. You know, yeah, yeah. this is one of those things that I learned during the pandemic that I did not know before was that Pike County uh, didn't doesn't have a hospital. And that they're relying on Wayne Memorial in Wayne County for a lot of these services, a county over. But it wasn't until you spoke to me tonight that I heard that it's the only county in all of Pennsylvania that doesn't have a hospital or urgent care. That's crazy. Yeah, that shocked me as well. And uh, that sort of makes this announcement a lot more promising. It's a verbal commitment as of now, but apparently... This has been in the works for a couple of years um, that they've been talking with this company. Um, it's been years that the Pike County commissioners have been trying to push to get this to happen. Um, apparently, there are two potential um, locations that they're looking at. One at the Weiss Market Complex in Dingman's Ferry. 
the other being somewhere along Route 507 in Palmyra Township. So even though this is just a verbal commitment, they do seem to really be um, committed. This isn't just a, we may do this. Right. So things are moving forward. I'm curious what impact uh, it has at all on Wayne Memorial, what Wayne Memorial's reaction might be. Is this something that they they would view as some kind of competition because they're currently trying to fill those services, or would they view this as some kind of relief because, again, they're struggling to uh, fill those services? Yeah, it could definitely be both or either of those things. Um, What I continually learn, the more I, like, learn about medicine and the the more that I run into these, um, like, government and private facilities, is there's a lot of cooperation between them. Or, like, there are a lot of operations that sort of cover the same ground that, provide maybe not the same services, but similar services. So I can't speculate what what Wayne County, uh, Wayne Memorial executives are thinking right now, but um, the outcome will definitely be better health care for people in people on the ground. Yeah, if we talk yeah. to Wayne Memorial again, that's something I'd be curious. I, well, you know, I would hope that it's the sort of thing where you know they they're like, great, this this uh, helps everybody out. Um, and yesterday, uh, Patricio, I don't know if you heard the program. Patricio talked to Doctor Jonathan Nasser, uh, who uh, does internal medicine pediatri- pediatrics with Crystal Run Healthcare, so looking uh, more like in the Hudson Valley area. Um, talking about the this RSV, the respiratory syncytial virus. And talking about the fact that we're heading into a winter season, which is typically when contagious respiratory viruses uh, proliferate, we're looking at now there's this RSV, there's still COVID out there, and it is flu season. Uh, All this stuff seems to be on the rise. Are you looking at this, Liam, and what can you tell us? Yeah, we're definitely looking at this. Um, Our our health columnist, James D. Lomax, has said similar things about RSV that we are heading into sort of a winter virus season where things like COVID-19, the flu, RSV are kind of a triple whammy. Um, The pandemic uh, had a kind of a lingering effect, uh, according to Lomax, in that um, children haven't been mingling as much. So they're like, immunities to common viruses have declined short slightly. So things like RSV, things like influenza may be um, more, they may be more susceptible to that. Um, another, the other thing we've been following a little bit is the COVID numbers just because we'd heard, or at least I'd heard anecdotally that a lot of people were getting COVID and um, numerically the pandemic definitely isn't over, but it's not, Spiking either. Numbers are holding fairly steady. Um, the rate of infections and hospitalizations has been pretty drastically reduced over this past year, according to uh, Sullivan County's public health director, Nancy McGraw. Um, a lot of that thanks to vaccinations and a lot of that thanks to yeah, just people getting vaccinated. Um, and um, public health uh, officials in Pike County um, are sort of starting to look at influenza and other types of colds. So 
Um, COVID-19 is still a thing, but these other illnesses that are starting to pick up are a little bit more of a concern in the immediate present. Well, this is why, you know, we're we're trying to up our coverage on this because it seems like this this is what's going on out there. But, you know, you, we're not hearing any messaging or you're hearing mixed messaging to no messaging on this. Um, is there any are you getting any kind of consensus of what it is that any of the medical people you're talking to would like to see? People do. For example, Dr. Nasser last night was, you know, wouldn't say that he recommends that people wear masks, but he was acknowledging the usefulness of mask wearing when some people do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing I've been hearing is vaccinations mostly, uh, specifically for COVID and for the flu. Um, right. Just having that kind of protection. It might not completely protect, prevent any one person from getting the virus. Um, don't take my word on anything vaccine-related. I'm not a public health professional. Um, but having it, it is a very useful tool to help people um, stay safe and stay healthy, and um, people should consider that as a tool in their toolkit going into this winter cold season. Okay. And finally, then, uh, I hear Wayne County's already uh, got a budget in the works for 2023. Tis the season for that. Uh, what's what's new? What's coming in 2023, according to this budget proposal in Wayne? Yeah. Uh, Wayne County's budget is fairly similar between 2022 and 2023. There are some budgets items that have gotten moved around. Uh, there's more money, uh, about a million dollars, a little under a million dollars additional in human services. Um, there's some additional money in public safety. Um, there's some additional money in conservation and development. Um, but overall, the budget has stayed within about $1.5 million of what it was last year. So last year it was $37.5 million. This year it's $38.9 million. And that is sort of achieved through a combination of two things. Um, the actual revenue that the county is bringing in from taxes is staying the same. So the county isn't raising taxes um, the tax millage is exactly the same, but there are a couple of things being carried over from last year's budget unspent that give the county the room to make that like $1.5 million increase. Um, there's uh, a few like miscellaneous grants and sources of income, um, but also um, as far as I understand it, the county collected more taxes than they expected to collect last year. Uh, they, the county estimates that uh, real estate tax collections will be at about 90%, but they saw 93%. So that additional money um, that they didn't expect to have from previous years is what is funding uh, the budget going up a little bit this year. Actual revenue from taxes is staying equal. Revenue from other points of the government is a little different, but it's pretty much the same. So, um, yeah. Okay. Wayne County residents should see things being pretty much the same as last year. 
All right. Well, Liam, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us tonight. And I'll remind folks that you, they'll be able to hear you uh, on the headlines this weekend, as usual. And I guess we'll talk to you in this space next week. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing you then. Thank you much. Liam Mayo, award-winning reporter for the award-winning River Reporter, right here every Wednesday doing our weekly news roundup. This is a local edition. And real quick, let's get some news in from Albany before we move on to anything else. Governor Kathy Hochul has until the start of the winter holidays to make her mark on New York's highest court, the Court of Appeals, by choosing a new chief judge. As Karen DeWitt reports, a coalition of criminal justice advocates want Hochul to pick someone who has a background in fighting for the state's most vulnerable population. Karen DeWitt, double. This court right now is really unacceptably biased in favor of the prosecution, the government, um, and that needs to change. Former Chief Judge Janet D. Fiore resigned in August amid an ethics investigation. In New York, the governor picks from a list of candidates from a judicial nominating commission to replace the chief judge. The seven names include the current acting chief judge, Anthony Canataro. He, if chosen, would be the first openly gay chief judge in New York's history. Others on the list include Jeffrey Oing, a mid-level appeals court judge who could become the first Asian American to lead the court, and Alicia Wallet, the dean of Albany Law School, who has a background in disability rights. Governor Hochul, speaking for the first time since she received the list of names on Thanksgiving Eve, says she wants to appoint an exceptional person. I want someone who can do a number of things. You know, make us proud. Let us let the rest of the nation know that we are looking for the caliber of individual that can be tapped for the Supreme Court someday. Hochul says she's also looking for someone with administrative experience who can help revive a vast and complicated court system and deal with backlogs after the courts were shuttered during the pandemic. This chief judge has to have the experience and the ability to bring back a system that has been shuttered almost and start doing that because that has a collateral impact on criminal justice. When people have been accused of crimes do not get their day in court, either they're found innocent and they're back, or they're found guilty and they receive the consequences. That hasn't worked in a the way it's supposed to for the last two and a half years. The governor, though, is not tipping her hand over which name she favors. 135 criminal justice and civil rights organizations are weighing in. They say the court's track record under appointments by former Governor Andrew Cuomo leans conservative, with judges often siding with prosecutors or government and choosing to hear fewer cases that could have set precedents in defendants' rights cases. Peter Martin is with the Center for Community Alternatives, a group that works with communities disproportionately affected by incarceration. This court right now is really unacceptably biased in favor of the prosecution, the government, um, and that needs to change. Martin says just three of the seven people on the list would help balance out the court. They include Corey Stoughton, a longtime civil rights attorney who's worked for the Legal Aid Society, Judge Edwina Richardson Mendelson, a judge on the Court of Claims. She oversaw anti-discrimination policies under De Fiore and would be the first African-American woman to lead the court, and Abby Gluck, a professor of law 
Law and Medicine at Yale, who was part of President Biden's COVID response team. After Hochul picks someone, the state Senate has to confirm the governor's choice. Martin says if Hochul chooses someone they don't believe would counterbalance the court, the groups plan to lobby progressive-leaning state senators to vote against the governor's pick. Members of the Senate have responsibility to their constituents. Um, we hope and we trust that Governor Hochul will nominate someone really excellent. Um, but if she doesn't, we're going to be calling on senators to do what's right by their constituents and what's right by all New Yorkers and voting no on an unacceptable nominee. According to the rules, Hochul will announce her choice between December 8th and December 23rd. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of two Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. And right now on The Local Edition, it's the time that we take a look at jobs in the economy around our listening area, around the country, around the world. For that, we turn to James B. Huntington for another edition of Work Shift Live. Hello, James. Oh, James, are you there? Good evening, Jason. Hey, there you are. I thought I lost you for a moment. So um, we we should start off the segment with the with the latest news, the kind that usually makes headlines. Uh, uh, the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell spoke today. What did he have to say? Yes, he said the central bank could slow its rapid pace of increase rate increases at next month's meeting. Investors absolutely loved that. The Dow was up 737 today, and other things across the board got stronger as well. Yes, so he said the time for moderating the pace of rate increases may come as soon as the December meeting. That's sort of couched in uncertainty and almost hedging, but it does mean that the next increase will almost certainly not be three-quarters of a percent, as the last several ones have been. <clears throat> Count on half a percent or maybe even a quarter percent. Okay. So what's your, what's your takeaway from this? Yes, well, it's happening. I mean, he's trying to tell people honestly in advance what's going to happen. So um, I think it's a good idea. I think interest rates have been going up too much. One of the reasons cited in this piece was the reason, one of the reasons I think that, and that's that it takes a while. It takes a while to flow through the economy, as this piece put it. So even if interest rates just sat there, inflation, the effect they had on inflation would improve over the next several months. So it's a good move to make. He's he reiterated that it's important and it's important to do fast, but his thinking seems to be that we need to wait and see what effect all these increases have had before going overboard. Was there any reaction yet? Did the markets react to uh, whatever news the chair made today? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. The Dow was up 737. It's at 34,590. That makes it about 400 for the week. We have 
Silver up 79 cents to 22.35. That's the most it's been for years, I believe. Gold, likewise, went up $21 to 17.71. We have foreign currencies were up a bit, and the 100 yen coin is now 73 cents. Oil's at 80.60. That also went up, but oil has sort of been oscillating around to its own pattern or whatever. It's still over $7 less than it was four weeks ago. So, yes, the markets liked his comments, as mild as they were, a great deal. Hmm. Okay, well, and then we'll see if he follows through with what he's signaling there. And now um, talking about economy, uh, economics still, you know, I've heard about inflation, I've heard about stagflation. Now you're talking about shrinkflation. What is this, and should I be concerned? Well, be aware is more like it, yes. I mean, shrinkflation, it's a new name for an old thing. It's the idea of manufacturers cutting down the size of something instead of increasing the price. There's apparently more and more of those, and they are... Actually, sort of sneakier than they were in the past for a couple reasons. One, you have companies using the same container size and shrinking the amount of product. So, unless you're really hip to how much is in there, it'll look like the same thing. Second, you have companies diluting things. Some effects here where a major cough syrup brand, they added more water or whatever to keep the product container the same size and the number of ounces the same size, but they watered it down so much that they had to increase the adult dose. So you don't have to look only at the price and the quantities or whatever that are in there, but you also have to look at sometimes what the dosage or the recommended quantities recommended usage amounts are so it's getting tough out there yeah i don't i don't know how much their ingredients cost obviously somebody's looking at the numbers but it does seem surprising to me in an example like that that they'd choose that route to try to save money cutting back on actual uh, uh content but then offsetting it with water water's heavy and one of the biggest things that are costing now is the cost of fuel the increases that the cost of ship you think like that would be an example where just having less product would save you more but what do i know yes well well, if, and if you're talking about $10 for an 8-ounce bottle or something, the price of water has to be a small component there. So they're measuring everything, and of course the reason is to get people to perceive that it's all the same price as it has been. This is an old thing, by the way. It's nothing new. I mean, the, the snack brands, things like Fritos and Doritos, what they would do is they'd bring their bag down to from... 12 ounces to 11 ounces to 10 ounces to 9 ounces, and then when it got low enough, they'd keep the price the same on these. Then when when quantities got low enough, they'd introduce sort of a super jumbo size that would be 16 ounces (laughs) for a lot more money for a consistent amount of money with a lower-priced one, and then they'd shrink the size of that. Then you'd have 15 and 6 ounces, and before you knew it, or actually after... (laughs) A decade or more, this what used to be a 
the price for a 12-pound bag would be something for one of these big grab things at the edge of supermarket counters. Seems like, so, you know, maybe that you're setting yourself up for, if not outright backlash, at least, you know, the the bottom falling out on this. I mean, one example, this is a strange example because not everybody's paying attention to this. But I've noticed egg rolls. Like you go, if you go to a Chinese restaurant, you get the egg rolls. At a lot of them, the the egg rolls, uh, they've kept them the same old price, and they just keep getting smaller. And I look at it, say, like I'd pay three times as much to have one because now it's more, it's more of the wrap than any of the stuff that they used to put in it. You know? Um, yes. Well, that's a that's shrinkflation. That's a good example. It's a crazy name for something that I already knew was going on, but now I know what to call it. Yes, so be aware, everyone, be aware that you may be not getting as much net product, even though the price is going up. It's not going up, rather. Right. Okay, talking about jobs, is remote employee monitoring becoming more or less common in the ongoing struggles between employers and employees and working at home or not? Are they getting monitored now? This is a stunning trend. This turned up from emerging tech, eh? not-so-common newsletter. It's worker surveillance tech is going much higher. What we have before the pandemic, we only had three in ten companies with a thousand or more workers using automated systems to measure employee productivity. But by the end of last year, we had six out of ten. So it's doubled. Some of that is from companies being required to have all their workers in the pandemic working remotely for a while there, even those they would not really like to trust. But not all of that. It's up a great deal. We have ways of of measuring how many work, how many keystrokes, how much work people do. But these claims for productivity are doubtful automatically because for an ordinary cubicle job, which is not production as such, you can't really measure productivity. So the danger here is not that companies are making sure they're getting money from their employees, but it is that they will get ahead of themselves and start thinking they're measuring more than they are and start going after people who do plenty of important and money-saving or bringing in things but don't work as many hours, they're maybe penalizing people like that. So it's, it's a real danger among a lot of people in management to see these nice crisp numbers and think that they are exhaustive and complete and totally meaningful when really they have to look behind the scenes at them. All right, and then on the job-seeking end of things, uh, as somebody's looking for a job, what sign should they look for uh, that say maybe that's not the job you want to take? Yes, well, this is dangerous things. There are some semi-bogus, I should say, jobs out there and doubtful ones. Things to watch out for if you're marching ahead. We're generally here, we're talking about cubicle-ish jobs, things where you're contributing to companies' objectives in more ways than just production. Okay, the six things they have here are, one, they're unreliable in their communication or timetable. Now, I know that's about as 
common as pens and pencils in offices now, but it's still a warning sign. Second, you're asked to complete a test, a test or project early on in the process. I noticed I talked about this kind of thing a couple of years ago where companies are wrapping sample work things into interviews and there's a line between seeing what someone can do and getting free work out of them. So there is a point where job seekers have to say, no, I won't do that, or I will sign a contract here as a contractor, but not... Uh, okay, well, so, wait, to clarify on that red flag then, so it's not it's not unusual for a potential new employer to give you some sort of a test or ask for a sample, but what you got to watch out for is, is it crossing a line into being free work? Exactly. I mean, is it going to profit them? I mean, the old kind of thing, you know, so if you had a construction job or something, they might ask you to carry a 40 or 50 pound bag of sand across the lot just to make sure they could see you do it. And that's quite reasonable. But if they have you carrying bags of sand all day, well, I mean, that's unpaid work. Right. All right. Also, three, the job description is vague. Again, that's common, but it doesn't have to be too vague. Four, they're being cagey or defensive around compensation. Well, it should be a clearer thing, really, when the employee says how much they want or they offer a certain amount or so on. But if it gets weird, then you have to wonder if the job really exists. Five, they're being evasive around negative events. If something bad has happened to the company in the news, they should be all ready to talk about it to tell you a reasonable amount for what your job level would be. If they won't say or they just dismiss it as garbage, that's fishy. Six, you're not able to access other team members. Often you really should be able to get on the phone anyway with people you would be working with, people who have similar jobs, and find out what it's like for them. If they suppress that or they make it hard for you to do that, that's another warning sign. All right. Well, and that takes us right to the top at the very last minute. James B. Huntington, thank you so much for WorkShift Live. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, listeners. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH.